Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 73 of Yogaland. So I am eking out this episode in the last week of October. As we all know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And each year as I get further away from my own breast cancer diagnosis, which was three years ago, I like to reflect and look back. And I was diagnosed at this time of year. I was diagnosed September 2nd, 2014. You never forget, forget your cancer anniversary. So it's it's a very fitting time of year for me to kind of go into personal reflection mode. But I've been putting this off. I've been thinking about this talk and this live essay for close to a year. And it's a really, really hard one to do for several reasons. The first is the obvious reason. It's just sort of hard to talk about your own personal story when there's still challenging feelings around it that, you know, might always be there. The second thing is that, you know, I feel incredibly fortunate about my personal diagnosis and my personal experience. And I think in some ways I feel guilty sometimes because like I got off easy (laughs) so far. You know, I didn't have to do chemo. I opted not to do a total mastectomy. And I feel really, really healthy and well right now. So I realize that my story is not everyone's story. And I realize that there are people out there going through treatment right now, various phases, people going through other conditions and diseases and suffering. And I just want you to know that I have empathy for whatever your story is. So three years ago, I wrote about the experience of of the diagnosis. You can find that on the blog. I'll just put links to these on the show notes page. And then two years ago, I was kind of in a a little bit more of an angry space. And I wrote about some of my frustrations, you know, like the frustration with the pink industry and all of the debates in within the medical community about screening. I'm not sure how, you know, where we even are right now. The screening guidelines have changed so much in the past 10 years. It used to be that it was completely standard, at least in the United States, that women would get their first screening at the age of 40. By the time I turned 40, I was pregnant, so I couldn't have gotten a mammography anyway. But that screening age had changed to 50. My personal doctor suggested age 42. I will just state for the record that I think it is completely reasonable to advocate for yourself to start screening at the age of 40. And this is a recommendation from University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, the hospital where I was treated. I'll put a link to a a little blog post of theirs where they talk about it. The fact that the American Cancer Society estimates that 20% of breast cancer cases occur in the age group of 40 to 49, with approximately 50,000 new cases of invasive breast cancer diagnosed in this age group in 2013 that little blurb will kind of summarizes all of it for me. And I hope it will for you too. On to the focus for today. And that is that this talk was inspired by Kelly McGonigal's book, The Upside of Stress. I talked about this book in episode 28. I talked about a few key concepts in January. And so obviously I read the book a long time ago and I've been thinking about this essay ever since then. Here I am uh, getting getting down to the wire in October, finally forcing myself to do it. At the end of the book, she talks about a few key concepts 
First being post-traumatic growth. And this is the idea that people can go through extremely stressful and traumatic events, even violent events, and they can eventually come to a place where they perceive that the trauma has inspired some positive change in them. This is a difficult topic to talk about, and she actually talks about it really well because it can sound like we're all trying to put a positive spin on everything. And, you know, you might be sitting out there like, my trauma doesn't have any upside, or I'm not going to say that I'm grateful for the cancer. And that's completely valid. It's not about putting a happy face on everything, but it's this idea that when you both acknowledge the costs of a trauma that you've been through and the benefits, it leaves fertile ground for you to experience major life growth. And that is definitely what my experience has been like. And so I thought I would share that with you. The other thing that she talks about is creating a culture of resilience in your life. When people are encouraged to journal and write about their difficulties, but then find some meaning behind it or find some positive aspect to it, find some growth, they have better personal health outcomes. So they suffer from less depression, less anxiety, fewer follow-up doctor's appointments, and it can have sort of a contagious effect on the people around them. So when you listen to someone's restorative narrative, as she calls it, when you listen to someone else's story of resilience, it can inspire resilience in yourself. It can inspire empathy, but it can also inspire this sense of like, oh, well, they went through this really hard time and they came out of it having experienced life so much fuller, I can go through a really hard time too. I can get through it too. Toward the end of the chapter, there's a quote in the book from a journalist. And she says, we are all broken people in some way. For most of us, the big question is, how do you live a good life despite or within that brokenness? All of us are trying to figure out how to live with things that hurt. So here goes. I think this is the first time I've really publicly told this story. And that is when I discovered the lump. We were in London. We were staying in a flat in Primrose Hill. We were there for a month. It was August of 2014. And Sophia had just turned two at the end of July, and she was still nursing quite frequently, actually. I had told myself before I had her that I hoped she would nurse until the age of two because there are lots of Lots and lots of benefits to that. Uh, but once she turned to, I kind of realized she was nowhere near weaning. And because we were traveling, she was even more nursey. She And so I was nursing her to sleep one night and her head kind of went into this position. She fell asleep and her head kind of smushed my breast in this position and it really hurt. And something possessed me to just touch that part of my breast. And I've totally felt a lump. And I had had a lot of breast infections from nursing. To any mamas out there who've had mastitis, it's the worst. And when you have mastitis, you can kind of get a blocked duct. And so I had had many blocked ducts in that breast and they can feel like breast lumps. And so 
I had this like surge of panic when I felt the lump and I, you know, it went into like a cold sweat and I kept feeling it and feeling it and feeling it the way you do when you're worried about something. And I went upstairs and I told Jason, but I also really convinced myself that nothing was wrong, which is really crazy. Still surreal to think about it. I really convinced myself that it was just some crazy fibroadenoma, some something left over from a breast infection. We had two more weeks left in London before I could get home and get to a doctor. So we were Googling, you know, do we go somewhere in London? I was hoping I could go and just have someone, you know, do a test and tell me everything was going to be fine. I emailed my doctor and she convinced me to wait until I got home and we scheduled a mammography for the day after we got home from London. So we get home from London. We're all jet lagged. We go to get the mammogram. I had Jason come with me. It was what they call a diagnostic mammogram. So they have the radiologist look at it right there and decide what to do. And I can remember the woman giving me the mammogram was just so chatty and sweet. And she had a daughter my age and I was chatty and sweet because I was just like, this is going to be fine. And she did the mammogram and she told me the radiologist was going to look at it. And she came back and said, yeah, he wants to do a biopsy. And I couldn't believe it. And I, you know, that had that experience of like time kind of slowing down and the disbelief and the fear. And she gave me a couple hours to go home because so we had left Sophia with some friends. You know, she was young enough that she couldn't come with us. And it was so last minute that we just, we just left her with some friends. And so we needed to tell them that um, we needed more time. They had to do a biopsy. So a couple hours later, we went back. I don't think Jason was with me at this point, And they did the biopsy, which was super painful. And I talked to the radiologist who was like, similar to many of the people I would meet on my journey, many of the care- caregivers. He was sort of like a cross between being optimistic for me and also being kind of like a robot, which was not comforting at all. And so I learned very quickly that once you become a bona fide patient, there is a certain level of remove that happens with with caregivers because they just have to condition themselves for delivering bad news. And it's hard. And I, I don't blame people at all. It's just part of the experience. So I went home. I proceeded to literally not sleep or eat for, you know, two days until I found out. And then the day I was supposed to find out, there was like a whole, oh God, debacle with trying to get the results and no one was calling me back. And I was talking to, you know, admin assistants who were telling me that they weren't allowed to tell me, which made me pretty much suspicious that it was bad news, but I was hopeful. And then, you know, at five o'clock, uh, I think it was a Friday evening, my my personal doctor called me and said the words, you have early stage breast cancer. And she was just, she's just a wonderful person. And I wouldn't have, couldn't have asked for anyone else to tell me because she just said like, here's your list of things to do. You got to call an oncologist. You've got to call, you've got to expect that there might be chemo. You know, you've got to do this and this, do your list. You're going to be fine. The word oncologist kind of bounced around my brain for, for days of just like, I can't believe I'm 
I need an oncologist, which again is sort of embarrassing to say because why did I think I was different from anyone else who could possibly get cancer? Uh, you know, but it's just part of the shock, I think. So we then proceeded to go to try to make an appointment with the most well-known, you know, the, the very well-known breast cancer surgeon in San Francisco. This is September, September 2nd that I was diagnosed. She did not have an opening for an appointment until November, which I can't for the life of me understand why they would not then suggest someone else or I I don't know, but we had to then, you know, find someone else. So I found someone in my healthcare plan who was, you know, not a fancy well-known doctor. We went into her and she was extremely kind and you know, gave me all the information that I needed, but she told me that I would definitely have to do chemo. And I had actually, to back up for a second, you know, I had several friends in previous years who had gone through breast cancer diagnosis and treatment, and they had told me about some genomic tests where they, after they do the surgery, they can test the genes and they can, that you, you get a score, and if you are considered low risk, the idea is that chemotherapy won't necessarily lower your risk of the cancer coming back. So it's not considered really as worth it. And if you're high risk, then obviously it, it is worth it. And, and, and with a higher risk case, with a more aggressive cancer, chemotherapy treats more aggressive cells. Anyway, I, I'm not going to go into all of that, but I happen to know that there was no way this woman could know for sure that I would need chemotherapy. And I, I brought it up. I said, what about the Oncotype test? And she said, she smiled this kind of sickly sweet smile and said, well, you know, you're just so young. I just definitely think that the oncologists are going to suggest chemotherapy. So I then decided I need to get a second opinion. And that's when I got into UCSF, which I still feel eternally grateful for that decision. And when I went to that doctor, she sort of had the cross between the optimist and the automated person (laughs) personality. Oh, my goodness. And she had an intern with her as well who she asked if she could feel the lump, which was one of the most disturbing experiences of my life. But I gave up my body for science for that moment. So I decided I would go with UCSF, but in the meantime, I had been told that I would have to wean Sophia, and I would have to wean her as quickly as possible. In other words, I would have to wean her, you know, within a few days, because we didn't know when we were going to do the surgery, and we wanted to do it as soon as possible, and the breast surgeons could not operate on a lactating breast. So... Jason and I went home that weekend and here we are with our kid who's jet lagged and super clingy to mom and sensing that something is wrong, but doesn't obviously have the cognitive skills to understand what's going on, nor would we have really told her, of course. And clearly the whole family's in high anxiety mode and she's not allowed to nurse. (laughs) I will chalk that up to probably the most, no, the second most traumatic part of the entire experience. She was used to nursing before every um, nap, uh, every night before she went to bed. And every morning when she woke up, we would just like cuddle in bed and nurse. So in the morning we would wake up and Jason would have to 
take her out of the room while she just screamed and cried for me. And I would sit in the bedroom and (laughs) cry. And, you know, at the same time, we got through it. And what we realized and what we decided shortly after, I think we did that for about a week, we realized that we could have her nurse on my other breast, (laughs) that that breast was not going to be operated on. But first we had to get an MRI to make sure that breast did not have to be operated on. So this is what I mean. I don't know if I've talked about this before, but a cancer diagnosis is never like a straight up A, B, C experience. And I think that's what makes it so challenging. So, so I went in, I had the MRI and at that point, Jason was away. I can't remember where he was, but he was away and my mom was with me, thank goodness. And the MRI came back with another positive area of potentially having cancer. And my automated doctor, surgeon, basically just emailed me to say, we have to do another biopsy. And I was livid that she didn't really have the personal courtesy you know, slash social skills to just call me on the phone and tell me that I might have more cancer in my body. And I kind of ripped her a new one via email. I didn't really rip her a new one, but I let her know that she needed to call me in the future with any bad news. So I had to go back in, have, oh, well, first they tried to do a biopsy the traditional way with an ultrasound and they couldn't find it. So then they had me go into another MRI and They did another biopsy and it was really painful this time and left like a giant hematoma on my breast. So I had this this, like giant, painful, bloodied breast as I was moving through this experience and moving through life, which was, which was just like kind of added to this undignified feeling that, that you go through when you go through health challenges. But the good news was that I could, after that came back, and it came back clear so that the the second area on the MRI was a false positive and it came back benign. So then we realized we could nurse on the other breast and that just made life exceedingly easier. At that point, once we got the results from this MRI biopsy, things started to smooth out a little bit, a little bit. We determined that I was going to have a lumpectomy, so they were just going to remove the lump. And I met with a plastic surgeon at UCSF who said he could, at the same time, do a uh, lift and a and a breast reduction, which was which was great, which was like good news when you're a nursing mother and your boobs are huge. But in order for us to continue to allow Sophia to nurse on the right side, which she really needed to do, we could only do one breast at a time. <laughs> We, and the only date they had in like the next two months was while Jason was supposed to do his annual retreat on Maui. And we had taken Sophia there the year before and it had been this like wonderful family memory and we wanted to do it every year. And we decided, you know, we had to take that date. We weren't going to put off the surgery and we decided to, he had to do the trip that people had been expecting it. And there's like a huge deposit you have to put down on the retreat center that we, at that point, I was like, I didn't want any more stress in our lives. I didn't want to lose that. So fortunately, my mother came and Jason was actually there for the day of the surgery because I remember he stayed with Sophia. I went into surgery. I was actually 
so relieved the day of surgery. I mean, everyone commented, including my mother, that I was seemingly in such a good mood and no one could believe it. And everyone thought I was faking and everyone thought I was anxious. I was not anxious at all. I could not wait to get rid of that thing inside of my body. And I just trusted the team that I had working with me. So had the surgery and had to stay over nights was the first time I was ever away from Sophia and Sophia and Jason did great. And then I went home and after that, you know, there were, there were a few bumps along the way. Like I I ended up with an infection and that was a little challenging. And I ended up, you know, having to go around for, I think it was at least six more months with one perky, you know, operated breast reduced and lifted breast. And then one super saggy giant breast on the other side that my child was still nursing on. But those things aside, you know, I I moved through the rest of the holiday season. I was extremely grateful. And then I went through five weeks of radiation in January, at which point we did wean Sophia. And that was much easier. Then in the following April, I had the second surgery um, on the other breast. Yes. And that's, that's that. So I told that sad weaning story for a reason. And the reason is that it reflects one of the first profound ways that I feel like I grew from the whole experience. And that is that I I saw my own resilience in going through that. I saw um, my body's resilience. And I also, you know, my body's resilience having gone through the biopsy, the not sleeping, the not eating, the weaning my daughter, the second MRI, the hematoma biopsy, then the surgery, then an infection, then radiation, then another surgery. You know, it was a lot. But more importantly, I saw my daughter's resilience. And I was so worried about this traumatic weaning for her. I was worried she would remember it forever and ask questions. I was worried she would carry it around as like a rejection in some way on a cellular level. And who knows, you know, there may be some residue, there probably is some residue from this whole experience for her. But this is the point that I want to make with this whole episode, which is that while we can acknowledge that that was a really tough thing for all of us, we can also create the culture and the story in our family that this whole experience brought all of us closer together and that she demonstrated a lot of resilience as a little one. And so my memory, the story that I want to tell about that is that about six months after I was finished with radiation, I was in the bathtub with her. And, you know, when you... (laughs) This is like the TMI episode to the max. I I don't know if I should apologize to any men who are listening or if it's going to grow your empathy if you're a guy and you're still listening to this. I'm going to be so impressed. Please send me an email and tell me that you listened. So sitting in the bathtub with my daughter and when you have radiation on, on your breast, a bunch of things can happen. It gets kind of red. It can kind of peel. You know, I also had some some actual scars, although my scars look really good because I had a great microsurgeon you know, you have this, I have the scars from the breast lift and that kind of thing. So 
I'm sitting in the bathtub with her and she's just like playing and da 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 da. And here we are thinking that every day, like she knows mommy had cancer and she knows that mommy's breasts are different and she knows this and she knows that. And she just kind of lays down on me in the bath and she looks, she's staring at my breast and she says, Mommy, you, mom, you should really take better care of your boobs, mom. And I just laughed hysterically because it was like, clearly she had completely already forgotten that I'd had the surgery, that I'd been bandaged, that, you know, she couldn't nurse on that side, all of these things. She just thought that I wasn't quote unquote, taking very good care of my, my boobs. So that was a a great, you know, example of, of her resilience. And that has completely continued. She also did so well with the final weaning because we really kind of prepared for it. And she immediately found another way to comfort herself when she was going to sleep, which is that she would pull up her shirt and put her cheek on my tummy, or she would put her tummy on my tummy and she would nurse her animals. So so the first thing I, I learned is just how profoundly resilient we all are. The second thing that I came away with from the whole experience was I experienced what, you know, what we call in yoga and meditation as awakening. I experienced this incredible laser-like focus from moment to moment that I had never experienced before. And like when I don't really believe myself about it, I think like, oh, maybe it was the panic and the fear and the adrenaline that, that made me so laser focused. But it was more than that. You know, it was really, I can honestly say, Going through that year, I had many experiences where for the first time in my life, I just had this laser-like focus, a feeling of tingling in my body, and just an absolute sense of profound happiness and joy about being alive. And it, it tended to be, you know, something that I would see in nature, like a hummingbird flying by when I was with Sophia or some kind of connection with Sophia. I can remember at one point being really worried about my prognosis and wondering if I would see her turn turn 12. I was wondering, she was two. I was wondering if I would see her 10 years from then. And she was playing on her bed. And instead of focusing on that negative thought, I like just somehow my attention just honed in on on her playing in that moment and what she looked like and what she was doing and what she was wearing. I can still remember what she was wearing and how she was jumping on this little futon that we had and her smile and the sound of her laugh. And, you know, those moments happened a lot. Those moments happened often. And sometimes those moments were tinged with like a little sense of desperation or a lot of sense of desperation. So I can also remember being in this Vietnamese restaurant across the street from the hospital and waiting for a takeout order because I couldn't bear to like sit in a public place at that time. I remember it was while I was waiting for the MRI results. So I was pretty jacked up and just looking around at everyone in the restaurant, just chatting with each other and slurping their soup and like the delicious smell and the delicious soup. And I kind of had that 
awakening experience again where like, you know, the noise is kind of blurred out and I, I just felt so happy to be alive and to be in that moment. And at the same time, I felt really desperate, like that bargaining with God sense of desperation of like, I wish I wasn't going through this right now. I wish that, you know, I was just well and didn't have to worry about this. I wish I didn't have to worry about this for Sophia and Jason. I wish I could just mindlessly eat my soup and, you know, talk to my best friend right now. In talking about these lessons, you know, I, I, I don't want to make it seem like everything was so easy and perfect. You know, there's still a lot of pain for me around, around cancer. You know, I think anyone who's been through cancer knows this feeling. It's just, I don't expect it to ever be resolved. Um, I don't expect it to ever feel like this, you know, like a gift. I don't, you know, I don't ever expect that, but I, I do feel like I I try to focus on the difficult moments and then like the profoundly teachable moments. So another one was uh, at least six to eight months later, I was on the phone with a good friend of mine and she was really checking in with me like mentally and emotionally. And she just said, you know, how are you? You've You've been through so much this year and there's still so much going on with, you know, Jason's schedule and your life and everything. How are you? And I heard these words come out of my mouth and words like this have never been spoken by me before. And I said, you know, everything is just perfect, just as it is. All of the things that we wake up and worry about, you know, that my shoulder hurts and in Chaturanga and I can't do the practice I wanted to do today, that my kid you know, was late for school this morning and the teachers gave, shot me a dirty look that whatever, you know, whatever little thing that things that irk you throughout your day, like all of those daily annoyances, I just finally could see the bigger picture that those things are just a part of life and they're always going to be there. And for my personality, like I still get annoyed by those things daily. I still get annoyed by those things multiple times a day. But I can catch myself and I can see that I can either kind of laugh at those things or I can see that there's just a bigger, more profound experience of life and being alive that's at work and being healthy and being in it, being engaged. So I would say that's another thing I've really taken away is that before this happened to me, I think I'm a critical thinker and a I'm an observer. So I think I always had a tendency to over-criticize and not even other people, just things that were happening, the way things were. I had a a really great ability to uh, hone in on the negative. And I think in what that did to me was that I rarely said to myself, I really love my life. I really love being alive. I really love this moment. And you know, post-cancer diagnosis, I feel that way all the time. When I went to my first acupuncture appointment after the diagnosis, I mentioned this before that I went to, I found a new acupuncturist and someone who had been through cancer because for whatever, he didn't even, it was a guy, he hadn't even been through the same kind of cancer, but I needed to go to someone who was not going to have any look of pity on their face and was going to understand what it was like to be in my position. It was just really important to me. And I'm really fortunate that I found him. And I can just remember, I don't even know what he asked me, but 
I, I think he was doing the assessment and sort of asking me about any stressors that were in my life. And I was kind of like, well, you know, my daughter's two and a half or whatever she was. And we worry that this has been hard on her and this hurts and that hurts. And I can't feel my hand and you know, all of the things. And Jason's still traveling and yada, yada, yada. But, and I stopped myself and I, I got choked up and I said, but I just really love my life. And I just, I, before this happened, I wasn't that type of person. If you're that type of person, I am so impressed by you because it took me going through a life-threatening illness to get to that place. Another change for me that I've gone through is, and these are kind of two sides of the same coin, which is I um, was able to feel viscerally the sense of urgency of, of being alive and being healthy and wanting to live a life of purpose and meaning. And that includes, you know, career and creativity and and starting this podcast. So I felt the sense of urgency to kind of live out what I meant to live out in the external world. And then on the other side of the coin is I sort of came to feel just life boiled down to its very essence. And the fact that at the end of it all, the things I'm going to care about are the people that I love the most. And you know, any other people that I've experienced, any other quote unquote failures that I think I've had or um, things I, on my to-do list that I haven't accomplished on my larger sense of Dharma to-do list that I haven't accomplished, like those things are going to fall away. And um, what's going to matter are those who are just, who you just want to hold and love and squeeze until you feel like they are a part of you. I felt like that a lot while I was going through this. Like, I I knew what was important to me. And as cliche as it might sound, what was most important to me was just love, period. That's it. And then lastly, the last thing I wanted to talk about is it's changed my ability to focus on my own self-care as an important priority. Sometimes when I hear all of us talk about self-care, when I see it in headlines, I still feel guilty because I feel like it's such a privilege to be able to talk about self-care when there's just so much going on in the world. And it feels almost like an embarrassing privilege. But, you know, in this context, when your health is on the line, self-care is really important because if you don't take care of yourself, the chances are you won't get to be here for the people that you love. For me, you know, if I don't prioritize one hour of exercise a day and eating really well and really consciously, then I increase my risk my risk for recurrence. I increase the chances that this could come back and that things could not turn out so well. I just, I offer that in hopes that, you know, I was always a person through my entire decade of my 30s. I was someone who always put work first. I would, I just never put myself first. I thought it was more important to get things done and to live up to other people's expectations and to move ahead and to move forward. And now that's just, I realize how backward that way of thinking is. So on that note, I'm going to try to do, go do a 30 to 40 minute yoga practice before I go pick up my daughter from school. I would love to hear your story of resilience. It's really important the way that we talk to ourselves about adversity. And that's 
what I hope you will take away from this very personal episode. <laughs> it's very important and it's it's very beneficial to write down something that was a, a really hard event in your life and what you learned from it, how you grew from it. And again, you know, you can include the negative parts too. You can include the the challenges around it. I still feel challenged by all of this. So I want to invite you to do that and use the hashtag Yogaland Stories on Instagram. Write about something that was stressful or traumatic and then how you grew from it, how you changed after going through it, how it changed you and how you look at that experience now looking back. Thanks so much as always for listening. Thanks also for your iTunes reviews. They keep coming in and I really appreciate it. It helps improve my ranking. So if you enjoy the podcast and you want to give it a five-star review and write a little something, I would really appreciate it. As always, you can contact me at support at jasonyoga.com. You can go to yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 73 for show notes. Thanks as always for listening and until next week, enjoy your practice and love your life. 